This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. watching circles, a twitcher is the name given to a hardcore devotee, one whose sole interest is to add to the list of rare birds they have seen. Unlike regular birders, twitchers will travel huge distances, often at great expense, just to catch a glimpse of a honey buzzard or a red-necked grebe. For Rachel Pickthall, bird watching was just a part of growing up, a hobby she was introduced to by her mother and one deeply encouraged by her grandparents. She shared her enthusiasm for the peaceful activity with her older brother, Simon. The pair spent many an evening together, camped out in their back garden, bird guide in one hand and binoculars in the other. As they grew up, they remained close, but life sent them on very different trajectories. One Friday morning in late December 2013, Simon then age 48, travelled to Bempton Cliffs on the Yorkshire coast, which is the UK's largest mainland seabird colony. The last few years had been tough for Simon. His marriage had broken down and he had recently been diagnosed with bipolar. At the time, Rachel was living in Dubai, over 4,000 miles away. That's where she was when she got the phone call telling her that Simon's camper van had been found abandoned in the bird sanctuary's car park and that her brother was nowhere to be found. In that moment, her siblings' disappearance and the pursuit that her first bonded them as children became inextricably linked. Almost a decade later, the only rare sighting Rachel truly cares about is one of her brother. I'm Pandora Sykes, and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series produced by What's the Story Sounds, and brought to you with help from the charities Missing People and Locate International. They believe that all of the cases in this series could still be solved. This is The Missing, Simon Hodgson Greaves. Every family has its odd one out the square peg in the round hole. For the Greaves clan of Rickle, North Yorkshire, that title belonged to Simon, and it was one he wore with pride. 
When Simon um, comes through the door at Christmas time, you know, everybody has a smile on their face, but it doesn't last long with Dad. You know, Dad soon gets frustrated with him. You know, there, there were definite strains there because Simon was not leading a predictable life of studying, having a career, marrying, you know, buying property and having having a family. He wasn't that kind of person. He was a much more free individual. So that would sometimes get a bit prickly. My mum was always um, just gooey when Simon was around because um, he's the, the golden son, obviously. Simon was the second of four children born to Roy and Gail Greaves. His sisters, Julia, Kate and Rachel, whose voice you just heard, were huge admirers of their brother's unwillingness to conform to society's expectations of him. Simon was quite outspoken and became more and more outspoken as he got older about things like gender and religion and politics and race. And he, he you know, he led a, a very di- diverse life. He'd, he'd always look different. He'd always um, sound different. He'd always be doing different things. And he would always be pushing the boundaries of what was deemed probably acceptable or even normal. And then myself and certainly my younger sister, Kate, we were just in awe of him all the time. We just really wanted to, to cling on to his coattails, really. Growing up, Simon had been doted on by his parents, which didn't go unnoticed by his siblings. He was known as Golden Balls amongst us because he absolutely 100% was treated differently and differently as in better than um, the girls. Um, I'm not bitter. I'm just telling you the way it was. You know, for example, Christmases, Simon would get the new racer and we would get secondhand bikes. Lovely bikes, rally bikes. I remember my secondhand rally bike with great fondness. But um, Simon was always um, the cherished child, for sure, for sure. And I think that was quite a lot of pressure on him, actually. And when he showed that his talents laid in creative um, aspects in art particularly um, I think that was quite tough on my father who I think expected him to follow his footsteps in terms of a, of a financial background so yeah um, really really sporty and super talented but not at all bothered about progressing in anything but the creative side of life, really. Simon was born creative. He loved to paint, he had an eye for fashion, and he was also a keen musician. He was in a band, he played the guitar. He just was all the things that my father wasn't. And um, they just couldn't see eye to eye at all. Simon hung out with a lot of um, people from the gay community. And that was something that my father couldn't get his head around um, at all. Um, People of color, you know, that freaked my father out too. 
My mum was, I think, in a difficult position because dad was quite controlling and I think she felt that she needed to demonstrate that she was supporting her husband, but at the same time, she obviously absolutely adored Simon and found it very difficult. So a lot of things went on when behind dad's back when dad wasn't there, you know, she would continue to spoil him like, like crazy. And he was always welcome home. And um, she looked up him behind the scenes for sure. But Simon's greatest gift, and the thing that kept his fragile relationship with his parents from crumbling, was his undeniable charisma. His biggest weapon was his charm, if I'm honest. You know, you met Simon, and I promise you, you fell in love with him. Male or female, you fell in love with him. He, he just had the most amazing smile, sense of humour, and he was so enigmatic. People just adored him. By the time his A-levels rolled around, Simon had fully embraced York's alternative culture. He had a shaved head years before everybody had a shaved head. He would wear cravats, he would wear waistcoats, he would wear um, lots of vintage clothes. He, he just was really out there with his sense of style, his music. Um, he was quite something. And Simon was kind of well known in, in York um, because he worked at the clubs and the bars so people kind of knew him and he it, it, he was I mean god you all didn't have that much of a scene but it did have a scene and he was definitely red hot into that. The tension between Simon's bohemian lifestyle and his parents more traditional conservative values reached its peak when he rejected their suggestion of a career in finance and made the decision to go to art college. There, he made a friend by the name of Lofty. We had this fantastic friendship with Lofty in their first year of fine art at York. And that he moved out from home and lived in Acum in a big house full of students. And Lofty, I think before he'd even finished his first year, got a scholarship to Goldsmiths in London. And, and I don't think Simon got over it. And I think Simon dropped out in his second or third year. And um, that's when he had a really tough time um, of not quite knowing what he wanted to do with his life. Simon found himself at something of a crossroads. Not long after dropping out, he got a gig working in a clothes shop in York by the name of Zai for Men. He turned out to be a natural salesman and over the next 12 months spent time working in their branches in Glasgow, Swansea and Birmingham. Then he moved to London. Typical Simon. He moved to London and he worked for the body shop and he squatted in this amazing derelict building that he converted into this amazing apartment with things that he kind of just found. And it was right opposite where the body shop was on Upper Street, Upper Street in, in Islington. Rachel went to stay with him there regularly, where she spent time with Simon's London crew, a found family of runaways. He used to hang out with um, a pretty diverse group of people 
but a group of people who were pretty chilled and smoked a lot of um, weed and he you know he was a bit a bit of a hippie I suppose in some ways so he you know he was definitely peace and love rather than rather than a warring kind of person as the years went by and Simon's parents' frustration with his life choices grew, the Christmas reunions became increasingly combative. I remember, you know, my father very aggressively and nastily um, accusing Simon of being gay. Now, I don't even... I think I've chosen the right words there because all I'm doing is reflecting my father's bigotry by saying that because so what if Simon was gay you know got nothing to do with anyone um but at that time you know when we were younger um it was something that certainly my father couldn't I don't know tolerate or support and so there was quite a lot of um, stress surrounding that because Simon was just so fluid in his um, friendship groups and environment. My parents tried to avoid those kind of conversations because they they just couldn't keep up with him. They didn't understand him particularly. I think it was very much a case of, you know, Simon's around, let's all enjoy his company and his uniqueness but um you know let's hope that my parents don't say anything that sets everything off which they invariably did actually simon was born with itchy feet he never stayed in any one job that long he eventually grew tired of bath bombs and chucked in the body shop gig next job he had was as an as an estate agent which is so typical of simon to go from something, um, you know, in one sector and then jump to something completely different. But of course he was brilliant at it because um, he was so charming. So he had a, a fairly well-paid job and my career was going really, really well. And so we decided we'd invest in our first um, property, which we did in Fifield Road in um, Enfield Town. And we bought this um, upper floor maisonette on the corner of this road. God, it was so exciting. It felt so unbelievably grown up, but so unbelievably brilliant because, you know, Simon and I were living together and um, sharing our finances and investing in property. It was great. And this place needed quite a lot of work doing on it. We got it for quite a good price. And Simon being Simon did practically everything himself. Working on the house together brought Simon and Rachel closer than ever. We went interrailing together with some of my friends, had this amazing trip, um, a month spent you know, travelling around Europe. All of this um, and spending half of our lives in the great pubs in Camden and going to see bands and things and just having a bean of a time. But then something happened that no one could have predicted. Simon the free-spirited, anti-establishment radical, the avant-garde anarchist who had railed against convention at every turn, had met someone and decided to get married. And then all of a sudden, here he is, marrying a Yorkshire lass in Yorkshire, moving back to Yorkshire. And um, I think initially, when 
they got married, there was a lot of scepticism as to how last, how long would this last? This, this is not what Simon had ever seemingly be about, been about. But we all actually had to say, you know, maybe he's just been swept off his feet. That's great. We were concerned that um, Simon had suddenly decided that he needed to start being a conventional person. The relationship wasn't plain sailing. On one occasion, Simon and his wife went on holiday to Cuba. And when the day came for them to return, Simon suddenly decided that he didn't want to leave the island paradise. And he told his wife to go home without him. A suggestion which went down like a lead balloon. But lo and behold, Simon did come back with her. But then when the daughter came along, you know, it was just absolutely golden. In 2002, the couple had a baby girl. He would fall in love with people and places and things and art and books and films and and whatever at the drop of a hat. And when his daughter came along, wow, 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 did we see the full force of that. He absolutely and utterly worshipped her. Sadly, despite the joy that their daughter had brought into their lives, cracks started to appear in their marriage. I'd been in Dubai for about a year, I think, and um, Simon's wife called me and said that there were there were problems, and she was a bit concerned about about Simon's mental health, about his physical health, and um, that was when things really started, I think, deteriorating between between them. Eventually, the couple parted company and Simon found himself living with his mother. Since becoming a father, Simon had been a stay-at-home dad. But now that his daughter was living with her mother, he needed to find work. He was doing lots of different jobs. He worked in a care home in York. He worked in NatWest Bank. He worked for a very long time at the York Evening Press. And I think he worked in ad sales there in some sales kind of role but he did really well there then he had a friend who he set up a business with and his friend was a photographer and the friend would take beautiful photographs of key um, iconic images in and around York during the day and during the night and then they would turn these into cards and then they were sold in various you know souvenir shops or art shops or galleries in York. While Simon was doing everything he could to put a brave face on things, deep down, he was struggling. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week, you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. 
Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Things had got so bad um, between him and his ex-wife um, and He'd made a few mistakes, like, um, you know, collecting her from school when he shouldn't have done, um, taking her away um, for the weekend when he'd been told he couldn't. He just, you know, he didn't um, play ball. And so he got himself into um, deep water there. And um, yes, he, he became properly estranged from his daughter which you know, sent him into a complete downward spiral. He never got over the loss of his daughter, of, of the relationship with her. He never got over that. Things came to a head one evening when Simon was at the village pub and got into a verbal altercation with a fellow patron. The situation quickly got out of hand and the police were called. That night, Simon was sectioned. He was diagnosed with bipolar, which didn't come as any surprise. He was able to have these amazing highs where he was the life and soul of the party and the best person to have in the room, which would then be followed by the most horrific downs Despite the traumatic circumstances which led to it, upon learning that Simon was in a mental health facility, Rachel remembers feeling a wave of relief wash over her. We saw him in hospital and it was really sad. And I, I think when I think about it now, I just want to burst into tears because he looks so, gosh, he looks so, so vulnerable. Gosh, it was a, it was a real shock seeing him like that in a place like that but we also knew this was absolutely the right place for him to be in because he wasn't getting any better. Simon was prescribed medication and started having regular sessions with a psychiatrist. About a week later I went to see him at my mum's and oh it was the most lovely lovely day of my life because it's the last time I saw Simon and he it was I just had Simon back he was absolutely he was affectionate he was level he he was in control of his emotions he was sorry he was so sorry that he'd um, caused these problems he was you know felt he'd turned a corner he looked good he'd been staying at mum's and he'd um, obviously been eating well and um, the medication was absolutely and the support he was getting was absolutely 100% working for him. Rachel boarded a plane to Dubai, knowing that there was a lot of work to be done, but confident that her brother was on the right track. Sadly, Simon couldn't stick to his programme and he slowly began to unravel. He stopped taking his meds and his behaviour became erratic. And my mum felt very, um, very vulnerable having 
him around and so then he he had a really tough couple of years and my mum found it really difficult to cope with him and in the end said she couldn't cope with him and that it wasn't um, the best, you know, the best solution was not for him to live with her, which was awful, but mum was having a really, really tough time. To make matters worse, Rachel and Simon's mum suddenly became ill. She ended up um, in hospital, New York hospital, with pancreatitis. And then, unfortunately, she contracted one of these hospital superbugs, um, Clostrum difficile C. diff. And, you know, she, we thought we were going to lose her, actually. And Simon went to visit her um, because by this time he was bit sofa surfing, bit living in his camper van, bit living with my elder sister and he'd asked to see mum and the deal was yes as long as you don't cause any trouble don't ask you know mum about moving back into the house play it cool and um, you know he went to see her and everything was great um, for the first 55 minutes and then in the last five minutes he um, he lost the plot and so that was tragic because um, it's of course the last last contact she had with him because that led into the December when he went missing. Simon's freedom had always been extremely important to him and he loved nothing more than getting behind the wheel and taking to the open road. He also, by this time, had this amazing camper van, which meant that when he and mum clashed, he was able to jump in this effectively mobile home and go off and survive quite brilliantly because Simon, you know, is has got the talents of Bear Grylls in terms of survival. So he would, he would go off for weeks at a time where actually none of us knew where he was, but then he would always reappear. In December 2013, Simon drove his camper van to his sister Julia's house in Kaywood, south of York, about a 10-minute drive from their mother's home. We have very little understanding of what happened in the days and weeks leading up to his disappearance. But he did stay on and off with my elder sister. I mean, she maintains that there were no signals that, um, you know, he was perhaps thinking of um, disappearing off the face of the earth or, you know, there's just so much that we don't know about what led up to that, that day when he went to Bempton Cliffs. Bempton Cliffs on the Yorkshire coast is a stunning nature reserve where every year over half a million seabirds gather to breed. It's overseen by the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, or the RSPB for short. We all grew up as um, twitchers, bird, bird watchers. My grandparents, my maternal grandparents, were always members of the RSPB, would always buy us things connected to the RSPB or connected to birds for Christmas. Sam and I used to camp in tents, in gardens, with binoculars and bird books, and we were all pretty well informed about which birds were which. And so Simon going off to RSPB Bempton for the day 
would not have been seen as anything untoward at all. Simon took off in his campervan from Julia's home on the morning of December the 20th, 2013, a Friday. Then on the Saturday morning, the 21st, the RSPB staff alerted Humberside police to say that a vehicle has been in the car park since the previous day. And the person in the shop said that there'd been a male sat in it with legs out. Somebody along the lines told me with wellies on. I I don't know why this sticks in my head, but that's what I was told. But now that they'd gone to the car on the Saturday and it was locked and empty, so Humberside police traced the vehicle to Simon. And of course, it was registered at my mum's address. But he absolutely was using it occasionally to live in, for sure, because of the things that were found in it. The police reports from that day show an empty binoculars case was discovered in the camper van, as well as several bird-watching books, evidence which suggested that Simon had gone for a walk to indulge in his favourite hobby. So the police went to visit my mum's home address, but no one was in. The authorities eventually got in touch with Simon's sister, Kate. She immediately picked up the phone to call Rachel, who was in Dubai at the time, and filled her in on what was going on. It's all very odd when you look back at it, because I just don't think we really understood what was going on. I really don't think that um, the impact hit us immediately. We were perhaps just trying to convince ourselves that there wasn't really a problem. This wasn't simply a case of wishful thinking on the family's part. Simon had prior form in this area. Simon had disappeared, I don't know if that's too strong, but taken kind of leave of absence before and then turned up, especially around Christmas time, he would kind of turn up on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. So part of me thought that that was perhaps the same, you know, the same thing was happening. But another part of me did feel that this this was something different. This was a bit more serious. As the hours ticked by with no sign of Simon coming up for air, the authorities doubled down on their search efforts. So that's when Humberside police sent out their um, helicopter twice and they did a complete clifftop walk without any success. They checked all the hospitals, there was nothing. And then on Boxing Day, the Mountain Rescue um, did a land and sea search and that proved negative. Nothing um, at all was turned up from that and that included dogs and we provided a piece of Simon's clothing for the dogs to, the sniffer dogs to use. Worsening weather conditions made combing the cliffside increasingly challenging for the search and rescue teams. Meanwhile, the police had started reaching out to all of Simon's nearest and dearest. They contacted whatever friends um, and family they could find. They then engaged the missing people charity. Then media appeals were made. There were 
news alerts in local uh, newspapers and on television, on ITV calendar and on radio. Over the course of that week, the authorities also responded to multiple reported sightings of Simon. One in a nearby shop, another in Peterborough, all of them dead ends. By the time Rachel touched down on UK soil in early January, any notions the family had that they may have been wasting the police's time, that Simon was going to just turn up any day now, had long since been dispelled. I could tell things were, things were getting serious. You know, the police, they searched my elder sister's house, they were doing financial searches, they were asking lots and lots of questions about him. Unable to sit still and twiddle her thumbs, Rachel started asking questions of her own. I'd never been to Bempton Cliffs before and um, I didn't really know much about it, but I did do some research and that's when I found out that you know, a few people in the past had actually taken their own lives on the cliffs up there, which is why I think the police alert was raised so quickly by the people at RSPB and in you know in the in the shop there. Um, so that started to feel a bit different. Even at the best of times. Simon had always been a difficult person to reach. He's never had an email address. He'd never had a mobile phone in his life. Um, He'd never had a computer, a laptop, a personal computer. So my sister had actually given him, Julie had given him a phone that week. But in the end, the police found that phone still in their house. By this point in the investigation, the police were liaising with Missing People, a UK charity which specialises in reconnecting families with their missed loved ones. Missing People had written a report and in their uh, report they gave guidance to the police that they felt that there were four options open to what had happened to Simon. and um, The first was that he'd gone for a walk or gone bird watching and had had an accident. Um, the second was that he'd uh, elected to go missing and go off grid. The third was that he'd taken his own life, and the fourth was that he had been a victim of a crime and something something not nice had happened to him. So those were the four um, options that the police were working on. The problem was, there wasn't sufficient evidence to back up any one of these scenarios. And as the days and weeks went by, the odds of finding any were rapidly diminishing. I think as time has gone on, we, we sit in a situation where, you know, they, there's the hackneyed expression, isn't there, that time's a great healer, whereas I think for us, it actually makes our makes things worse. You know, the more that time goes on and the more that Simon hasn't reappeared or any any evidence of anything. We literally have not a shred of anything to explain what happened to Simon in Bempton. 
And so time has made that um, more difficult, for sure. As for what Rachel thinks happened to her brother, she's understandably hesitant to place all of her eggs in one basket. It's roulette. It's absolute roulette. You know, I blow with the wind, but then, you know, when I kind of look back and then there's little bits of information, like my sister mentioned that he received a letter that he threw on the fire the day before he went missing. So then that makes me want to um, find out a bit more about what that letter could have been about, which one of the options is he had some bad news about his health, but I can't get hold of his medical records. One theory which she cannot get behind is that Simon took his own life. I cannot imagine him doing that in a place of such beauty, which was connected to the RSPB, which Simon dearly loved. And I also can't even understand the science and the maths behind how someone could jump off those cliffs and there to be absolutely no trace of them. Um, I mean, I, I went and visit the, visited the coastline years ago and got talking to someone who was who worked for the Lifeboat Association. And he was absolutely adamant that, you know, if somebody jumps into that sea, the sea will give their body up. You'd always find some evidence. So when you want to tell yourself that that was not the option, that's not what he did, then you use pieces of information like that to justify your thoughts. So really, you know, we, we jump around. Um, but the police, the police have kept Simon's um, file open. When we went to see North Yorkshire police, they said, we don't believe he took his own life. He's still an active missing persons case. And we actually, I went with uh, my younger sister, Kate, we, you know, we, we embraced in the car park and cried with joy almost because we felt that that was, at the time, and this is going back six years or something, we felt that that was a piece of really good news, really good information. 2023 marks 10 years since Simon's disappearance and his family are more eager than ever to get to the bottom of what happened. They put up a reward of £10,000 for any information that leads to him being found. Please, please, please end our, end our torture. Give us any information you've got, even if it's a, you know, a hunch, or even if it's, um, you know, something you you find difficult. You know, his siblings, who hopefully have still got many years left, but in particular for my mother, and also, you know, his his daughter. We really just need to know. We've got no information, no answers to our millions of questions. Um, just pure speculation and um, sadness, so much sadness. Rachel still goes birdwatching to this day. Almost a decade after his disappearance, it's her way of keeping her brother close to her heart. We were clearing out some of Simon's millions of books that he hoarded the other week and I found the original birdwatching book that he and I used to use in the garden in our tent 
So I brought that back with me. I, I went on a trip recently and brought my first pair of binoculars and went out, you know, bird watching. And that always feels like there's that kind of connection that you then then get with Simon. Um, you end up talking to him, but yeah, no, it's still a it's still an important thing to us. And my mother's got the most beautiful painting that Simon um, produced of a a curlew in her house. And so you know, whenever I see her, she obviously sees that daily. But um, yeah, it just reminds us of the importance of it. In many cases, it takes just one piece of information to lead police or family to the answers they crave. If you know what happened to Simon, or you remember seeing someone like him on December the 21st, 2013, your information could be vital. Even if you've never heard of Simon Hodgson Greaves before listening to this episode, you could still help. Visit our website themissingpodcast.org, where you'll find more information on this and every other case we featured on this podcast. There, you can join an online movement, one dedicated to supporting the investigations for all the cases we've covered, including the one you're listening to right now. Since the launch of The Missing Podcast, over 300 volunteers have joined community investigation teams led by Locate International. In the UK alone, there are over 12,000 long-term missing and unidentified people. To support Locate's efforts and to learn more about the vital work they do, visit locate.international where you can join the mission to help locate the missing. The series is also made in collaboration with the charity Missing People, who work tirelessly to support the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. You can reach them by calling or texting 116-000 or by emailing them at 116-000 at missingpeople.org.uk. We cannot say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. Rachel hopes that the information will soon arrive to solve this one. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.